0: Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine podcast. As always, I'm your host Brad Soboleski, and unfortunately, I am bringing you today's topic: measles. And why is this necessary? Well, there have been cases reported in over 20 states in America this year alone, and there have been outbreaks defined as three or more cases in new york michigan new jersey california georgia and maryland it's thought to be due to travelers bringing back measles from regions in the country where there are current epidemic outbreaks such as israel ukraine and the philippines i'd wager that most listeners to this episode have not seen measles clinically so i wanted to talk about making the diagnosis treatment as well as other pearls around post-exposure prophylaxis, vaccinations, and what to do if you suspect measles has arrived in your emergency department. So let's start with some epidemiology, pathophysiology, and focus on some of the main symptoms. Humans are the only host for the measles virus. It's spread via droplets through the mouth or nose, and it is very communicable. It has an attack rate of 90% in susceptible individuals. You need to have a population immunity greater than 85 or really greater than 95% to prevent rapid spread. So the measles virus enters through the nose or mouth, it replicates locally, then it spreads in the blood. You are contagious from four days before the rash develops through four days following appearance of the rash. Immunocompromised people are contagious longer. The incubation period is anywhere from 6 to 21 days, the mean is about 13 days, um, from exposure to the onset of symptoms. And those main symptoms start with the prodromal phase. This is two to four days, including fevers high as 40 degrees centigrade, malaise, anorexia, and then the simultaneous development of the three C's, cough, conjunctivitis, and coryza. So the conjunctivitis may have lacrimation or photophobia, and coryza though it's handy to have three C's as a mnemonic device, is just rhinorrhea or a runny nose, but often it's pretty profuse. 48 hours prior to the rash, but not in every case, you'll see the development of coplic spots. Now, these have been described in many ways, but grains of salt on a red background, according to Bernstein, in the Manual of Infectious Diseases, is a really great way to think about them. They're 1 to 3 millimeter white, gray, or bluish elevations with a red base that are seen most commonly on the buccal mucosa opposite the molars. They can also be on the palate or even on the labial mucosa. Seeing them should make you highly suspicious of measles, but they do not appear in all patients. The characteristic rash shows up two to four days after the initial fever. It's erythematous and maculopapular. It begins on the face and then spreads head to toe and from the trunk to the extremities. Early on, the rash is blanching, but not later. Some patients will actually get a petechial-appearing rash or even hemorrhagic lesions that can be seen on the lips. It's rare to see the rash of measles on the palms and soles. During the rash period, fever can persist. Patients also may experience lymphadenopathy, pharyngitis, continued conjunctivitis, and coryza and even possibly splenomegaly and generalized lymphadenopathy. Within 48 hours of the rash developing, you will see clinical improvement in most patients. The rash darkens to a brownish hue and fades in the order of appearance, followed by desquamation in the areas that were more severely affected. Overall, this rash is expected to last six to seven days. The initial cough can last one to two weeks. If you have a patient with measles and they have fever for greater than three to four days after the rash arrives, suspect a complication, the most common of which is diarrhea, which leads to lots of morbidity and mortality in the developing world. The most common cause of measles-associated death is pneumonia. It happens in about 6% of patients, and it's more common and more dangerous in patients under the age of five and older the age of 20 years. Encephalitis happens in one out of a thousand patients with measles, and can occur anywhere between days 1 and 14 following the rash, averaging on day 5. This form of encephalitis includes meningeal symptoms, altered mental status, convulsions, and coma. A quarter of patients with measles-associated encephalitis will have neurodevelopmental sequelae, 15% die rapidly. Acute disseminated encephalomyelitis is a post-infectious complication of measles and thought to be due to autoimmune issues, and it happens in 1 in a 1,000 patients as well. Its symptoms include altered mental status, choreoathitosis, paraplegia or quadriplegia, and worse. The mortality rate is as high as 20%. Subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, or SSPE, happens 7 to 10 years after a case of measles. It starts with personality changes and behavioral problems, then it progresses to really significant myoclonus where you can have episodes of limb jerking every 5 to 10 seconds, then you can later see flaccid or decorticate neurodegeneration and autonomic nervous system dysfunction. Children can die at any stage from this horrible complication. Obviously, the prodromal phase of measles shares many features with a common cold, although in measles the fever is often more pronounced. So you have to do a really thorough history and focus on potential exposures to wild-type measles. So if somebody has traveled to a region with a current outbreak, or they live in a place with lower herd immunity due to declining vaccine rates, you should be worried about it. You have to differentiate the rash from the following illnesses. Are you ready? Varicella, roseola, parvovirus B19 or erythema infectiosum, enterovirus like hand, foot, and mouth, rubella. Group A strep-causing scarlet fever, drug rashes, meningococcemia, Kawasaki, HSP, mycoplasma, and more. Some distinguishing features of the measles rash include the spread from head to foot and then the core to the limbs, and the brownish discoloration when the lesions are waning, as well as the very prominent coryza and conjunctivitis. So if you're worried about measles or you're going to make the diagnosis, you must know that this is a illness that is reportable to the health department. You have to have a high clinical suspicion, take a good history about possible exposures and vaccine history, followed by obtaining lab studies. So there's different ways to make the diagnosis of measles. So you can do a viral RNA by RT-PCR, and this can happen when you get respiratory samples, uh, from the throat, from the blood or urine, a IGM. And since the incidence has decreased, the positive predictive value of this IGM can be lower with a false negative rate as high as 20% in the first 72 hours after the onset of illness. If you had a convalescent lab sample and then an acute disease lab sample, you could see a four-fold increase in measles IgG antibodies. Or you could do a cell culture, but that often takes two weeks and has been replaced by newer techniques. So in areas of low measles prevalence, you're going to want to get multiple samples. So some recommendations would include a serum IgM, getting a nasal or pharyngeal swab for PCR, and a urine for PCR as well. Getting three sites increases the likelihood of establishing the diagnosis. You want to get these tests as soon as possible, since viral shedding drops off once the rash starts. If patient has a suspected contact, look at the Red Book or CDC recommendations, and also follow your local hospital protocols. If you're working in a high-prevalence area in the developing world or an area where there's epidemic outbreaks, the World Health Organization says serum IgM is the main test of choice know that parvovirus can actually cause a false positive for the measles IgM. Now let's focus on treatment. And mostly it's supportive, but remember, the complication rate is high, as is the attack rate, and the likelihood of mortality. So vitamin A. It's very interesting that children with vitamin A deficiency seem to have a higher rate of complications in measles. Redbook, CDC, World Health Organization all recommend vitamin A for children with measles. It can reduce morbidity and mortality, and it's given once a day for two days, either PO or IV, 50,000 international units for infants younger than six months, 100,000 international units for infants six months through 11 months of age, and 200,000 international units for children 12 months or older. You would give an additional, a third age-specific dose two to four weeks later to children with clinical signs and symptoms of vitamin A deficiency. An example would be a shortcut patient. So there are no clinical randomized controlled trials of ribavirin or any other antiviral for measles. Now, ribavirin is available as IV or aerosol, and you may use it in an immunocompromised child with severe disease. Isolation is incredibly important given high attack rate of measles. Airborne transmission precautions are needed for four days after the rash develops in healthy kids. Exposed susceptible patients from day five after the first exposure to up to 21 days after the last exposure should be put in isolation and not go to work or school. So patients that have been exposed but have no symptoms, you should know that immunization is the intervention of choice. It's effective if given within 72 hours of exposure, so you give the first dose then, and then the second dose greater than 28 days later in the vaccine-naive patient. Let me do a little digression into the measles vaccine. So the measles vaccine program in the United States began in 1963, and there was a rapidly declining incidence in measles. Endemic disease that's seen year-round was interrupted in 2000. Initially, there was just one measles shot, but 7% in that initial group had a primary failure. So now we do two doses. The only licensed measles vaccine in the United States is a live further attenuated strain prepared in chicken embryo cell culture. It's available with MMR and MMRV. Single measles vaccines are no longer available. So you can only get it with mumps and rubella, Plus minus varicella. The MMRV is licensed for use between 12 months and 12 years. It's a 0.5 milliliter subcutaneous injection. Antibodies develop in 95% of children immunized at greater than 12 months and 90% at 15 months and above. 5% of patients lose immunity years later if they only get the single shot. Therefore, a second dose needs to be separated by at least 28 days. And for the MMRV, it's actually recommended for about 90 days. With the current vaccine schedule recommended by the CDC, stating that the first dose routinely is at 12 to 15 months, with the second dose before school entry at age four to six years. A dose before 12 months is not counted. And immunized people do not shed or transmit the virus. Complications of the vaccine include fever. It happens in about five to 15%. 6 to 12 days after the vaccine, and it usually lasts 1 to 2 days, sometimes up to 5. This fever is often up to 103 Fahrenheit. 1 in 20 patients can get a transient rash as well. Febrile seizures occur in 7 to 9 out of 10,000 patients following the first MMRV vaccine, and in 3 to 4 per 10,000 patients receiving the MMR vaccine, so the one without varicella. So you'll see one additional febrile seizure in every 2,500 kids or so if you use MMRV instead of MMR. These seizures can occur 5 to 12 days following vaccine. Generally, it's felt that the downsides of the additional shot outweigh the risks of a possible seizure. One in 40,000 patients can have transient thrombocytopenia, and one in more than a million in the United States can have post MMR vaccine, encephalitis, or encephalopathy. The vaccine does not induce SSPE. Furthermore, vaccines, including the MMR and the MMRV, do not cause autism. I know you all know this, but it's still important to mention these days. International travelers should definitely be vaccinated. There are actually only a few people who should not get the MMR or MMRV vaccine. So if you've been on high-dose steroids for greater than 14 days, you have to stop for four weeks before getting the vaccine. If you have HIV and severe immunosuppression, or if you're a pregnant woman, or have had a history of anaphylaxis or severe allergy to that vaccine previously. Some people assume incorrectly that the list of the following things are contraindications to the vaccine. So if you have a current illness, like a cold or a sore throat, even if you have fever, if you have a history of a positive TB test, if you are breastfeeding, if you are the child or close household contact of somebody who is pregnant, if you are a female of childbearing age, if you have an immunodeficient family member household contact, if you have an asymptomatic or you're just mildly symptomatic from HIV, or if you have egg allergy. So all of those things, you can get the MMR or MMRV and you'll be just fine. All right, so most of you work in a healthcare setting, and your hospital is already probably starting to talk about making sure that all of the people that work in clinical areas are immune. So who is immune? Well, if you've got documentation of age-appropriate vaccination with a MMR, MMRV, or another measles vaccine, and you've gotten two doses, you're good. Preschool-age children, if they've had one dose after the first birthday, based on the current schedule, are okay as well. That second dose had to have been given greater than 28 days following the first dose or greater than 90 days if it's the MMRV. You could have laboratory evidence of immunity, so IgG. You've previously been diagnosed with the disease with laboratory confirmation, or if you were born before 1957. This is not a guarantee for all healthcare providers, so follow your local rules and regulations. Susceptible patients, especially to complications, include pregnant people, age under five, and anybody who is immunosuppressed or immunocompromised. So if you think that you are possibly maybe encountering a patient that could have measles, you have to take some precautions if you're seeing them clinically. And so know what your hospital or your work environment's rules and regulations are for limiting exposure to other patients and for placing these patients in isolation rooms. So patients with a febrile rash and illness that you think might be measles should be escorted to a separate waiting area or placed immediately in a private room, preferably a negative pressure room. You definitely have to wear appropriate PPE. So patients and staff should wear masks and respirators. So masks for patients prevent generation of droplets that they can share with other humans, and then the staff can filter airborne particles regardless of your immunity status. You should test for disease according to local practices and report confirmed cases to your local health department. Now again, chances are most of you will not see a case of measles, but I would encourage you all to look at pictures of the many variations of the skin lesions and other findings in the disease. I've included some links in the notes and on the blog. You wanna look at your local hospital or health department policies, what tests you have available and how you should report. And definitely check out the CDC measles outbreak map as it is regularly updated. All right, so that's all I've got for measles, a disease that I was told was wiped out when I was in medical school. Unfortunately, due to combinations of declining vaccine coverage as well as international travel and epidemic outbreaks in other countries, it's become a problem again in the United States. You all need to be familiar with it, have a high index of suspicion, take a good history, and know what tests and reporting processes are available and expected of you. Well, thank you for listening. As always, I would love feedback. You can leave comments on the blog, a review on Apple Podcasts, or shoot me an email or hit me up on Twitter. I'm at PEMTweets. Check out PEM Blog for more great educational content and check out the back catalog of PEM Currents. This has been Brad Sobolewski. See you next time.